Let's pray, shall we? Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah and carry handguns as much as possible. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Okay. If you'll, uh, let's see. Um, if you don't have a, a printed Bible with you, you probably have a copy electronically. If you'll open up to Luke chapter 14. Is that a 22 Mac? <laughs> what are we even talking about? <laughs> it is. Holy cow. It is. Thank you very much. That, that's 22 Mac. Luke. It's like he wasn't here. Luke chapter 14. (laughs) Trying trying not to covet. All right. And you're pointing it at your only It's pointed at your only son. That's right. Luke chapter 14. Oh, 14. I'm so confused. Luke. Luke. Go over to the dark side. We're talking about. So that means we're in the black letters, not the red letters. Which verse? We're going to start at the beginning. On Shabbat, as he entered the house of one of the leading proshim to eat bread, they were waiting in ambush for him. There was a certain man in front of him whose body was swollen with water. Yeshua responded and said to the sages and proshim, Is it permitted to heal on Shabbat or not? Why did he ask that? It was a rhetorical question, but why did he ask the question then? Who's he at dinner with? Pharisees. He's at dinner with the Pharisees, and he's evidently at a Pharisee's home. What's the what's the halakha? What's the what's the not the not the halakha on healing at Shabbat? What is the what's the what's the norm? What's the norm for being at somebody's table? Who, it's his, he's authority. He has authority. He does have authority, but who's got the highest authority in the room at the time? The man whose house it is. The man whose house it is. So why does he ask the question? He's submitting. Get permission. He's waiting for the owner of the house. He's waiting for the guy at the head of the table to give the answer. Well, what happens? They said nothing. They said nothing. They were silent. He grasped him, I don't think it was the guy at the head of the table, but rather the man who was swollen, and healed him and sent him away. He answered and said to them, Which one of you, if his donkey or ox fell into a well, would not quickly lift it out on the day of Shabbat? They did not know how to answer him. That's from the Torah. Yes. They were probably a little flabbergasted. So they probably knew the answer. Did he just heal that guy? So he took up his parable to the guests when he saw that they had chosen to sit at the front. So we've got a different venue now, right? I mean, same venue, but different topic, right? So first thing, he's sitting down at dinner, and it's obvious they've set him up, right? Because who do they sit right across from him but some sick guy? And it's evidently Shabbat. He had dropsy. He had dropsy, right? He was an Amhaaretz and put him down there. 
Well, they normally would have had the Am Haaretz at the table to begin with. People of the land. The Pharisees, thank you. Yeah. The Pharisees normally wouldn't eat with them anyway. Maybe this was right? a scribe who had developed a trust. So, so I really think they set him up. If they brought this guy in who was sick, they were really trying to, to get an answer. Now, quite or frankly, don't we do the same thing? You get invited to the Uppams on Arab Shabbat, and what are you doing? If you've been reading the portion, you're coming with questions. You want to know some answers, and you want to argue at the table. If I go over Rick's house, I'm not going to just show up. I'm going to read on whatever we're going to be talking about, and I want to bring some good questions. Or bring Peter. <laughs> you know. I'm not so sure he's at the table, though. Well, I don't because know. he heals him and then he sends him away. He sends him away, so but it says he entered. It says he entered the house. Yeah, I know, but he to but he, eat he, bread. Just bread. He may not have been sitting down at the time. You're right. He may not have been. But and then he took him. So where is, where do you say you entered the house? I've got fourteen one on Shabbat as he entered the house of one of the leading Prussian to eat bread. Actually, it just says he went to eat. He went to dine at the house. Oh, he didn't say yeah. he went to eat bread. I mean, just say well, he went to eat. Same deal. Right. I mean, if if you if you, I mean, this what is a I'm, translation. What I'm what I'm envisioning though is not necessarily in the house. But it says or, he does say he entered the house. He entered the house, or, or he went to the house. Yeah. Here's 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 my here's my here's the frame of reference that I have. Okay. Good. If you have a ruler of the Pharisees, he has a he doesn't have a a house on a street. Right. He's got a courtyard. He has a courtyard. Sure. You know, and people come into the house, but they're not in the house yet. And in the courtyard, you have all manner of people. You have people there begging, you know, they came, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I come every week, sure. you know, to get something, what, all those kind of things. That's kind of what this sounds like. It does, except that he asks the question. And the reason why I say that, though, is because he sends him away. I get it. If he's, he's healed. I get it. Eat. I get it. Eat. It's Shabbat. He sends him away. I get it. But you have to also ask the question, why did he ask the rhetorical question? Why didn't he just heal? No, 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 I agree with that. What I'm, what I'm suggesting, though, is, is that it may not have been a setup. That it may have simply been, well, they're watching everything he does. Of and course. this guy's coming to this house because he knows he's going to be there. It could be. Could be. Well, Good. In the, I mean, the reason, I think the reason Yeshua asked the question is because... That was That's the a, question that of the was day. A the theological debate a great sure. that was going on at that point in time. Sure, there was debate about should you be, you know, is it lawful to heal on Shabbat? Yeah, but I don't think he asked it rhetorically. I think he asked it the same way you I mean, and I would ask I each other, true. right? So, so that we can get the argument going. Absolutely. Let's talk about this. Should we heal on Shabbat? So was he? Did, are you saying that he Crickets. genuinely was asking the like the question? Like I, I don't know. No, I, he knows. Oh no, no, no! I know he knows. No, I he's think he's asking to get, to the get them to dialogue, okay. and they won't dialogue. And now, especially from I, the head of the house, right? So if they're not going to dialogue, he gives them the answer because now, as as Colby said, the guy at the head of the table, the guy whose house it is, the guy who has the table, has. The, the the leadership and he's now deferred by not saying anything to Yeshua. That's right. So Yeshua has exactly the command right. of the of he's the, got the, floor. the he's got the floor, and now he's not going to. You, you don't want to argue about it. You don't want to talk about it. Here's the answer, guys. Smart. And he heals. Then he rings smart. in basically, yeah. and he's like, he's smart. It's like, okay, here it is, and then yes. now what? And and what's what can be the only response <laughs> from those who know the power of God? 
those people have to question, if I thought it was wrong to That's do right. it, why would God That's allow right. it to be done? Exactly right. It's like it set it up. I mean, he, he's, he's made the point, which yeah. Judaism later adopted. Exactly. This is, this is an example. I, I've, said, I've got the, the Talmud way, here ready I'm to sorry. read. Go ahead. This, this is an example of, of, of in all of the Gospels, because hey, the Sabbath, hey. Sabbath, the, the, the Melachot, uh, are uh, the works that we're allowed to do on Sabbath, are in, in, in flux at this time, right. as, a, as, a, as opposed to being well-established. And this is a biggie. I mean, this is like, yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. And his answer is like that. He's, he's talking about a jackass. But according to the 39 Mela Code, of course you do. Well, not every time. I mean, right. if it can be delayed, that's that's one thing. Right. But if it's, if it's a life issue, yeah, absolutely. But we look back and see that now. But you're right. It was in flux back then. That's right. But, but actually, I mean, what Yeshua's teaching is, no, you don't delay. I agree. No, no right. question. No, no, but I'm saying because the Talmud says the Talmud says modified from this because right. this it appears based on other places that there's no healing on Shabbat. Period. Right. Nothing prior, prior even to for this. life. Yeah. And and that's where and that probably is a holdover from the Maccabean, uh, you know, whole experience where some say we do right. and some say we don't fight on Shabbat. You know, and there's still a big group that says no, no, we never fight on Shabbat. So, well, and. I guess, does everybody understand why there would be even a question of whether we heal or not? Does everybody understand why that was even an issue? No. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, because what is Shabbat a picture of? The world to come. Where there is, is there sickness, is no there sickness, no death. So if we're rehearsing, right, then the, the one argument, the one school of thought was to say, if this is a microcosm of the eternal Shabbat, where there is no sickness, there is no disease, and therefore there will not be a, necess- a need to heal. If you're rehearsing that in this world, That's right. then we don't heal in, as as a recognition that in that Shabbat, in, in Yom Shekolo Shabbat, we won't ever need to heal. And, and if I can just back it down one notch, we do, I mean, how many of you have healed somebody? Okay, just check it. So, <laughs> so since that's not the norm these days... Um, we back it down one notch. We do exactly the same thing when it comes to praying for the sick on Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Somebody says, Sally's got the flu. Now we're going to need to pray for Sally. When do we pray for Sally? Right. On Sunday. Right? We're not going to break the Shabbat service to say, hey, let's pray for Sally. She's got the flu. We don't do that. Why? Because Shabbat is a picture of the world to come. There's not going to be any sickness. Now is not the time to be praying for Sally who's got the flu. That's why we don't we pray do it not. today. That's why we don't pray asking for forgiveness. Precisely. Although going back to this, and we remove that from the 18 benedictions. So going back to Yeshua's argument here, there is, I believe, actually in your Siddur, a section for praying for someone who's like desperately ill. That's like near Shabbat. death. On Shabbat. Yes. In the liturgy. Like near death. Yeah. Yeah. But again, now we're talking about life. But praying for the sick is a regular thing that we do and spend a lot of time taking prayer requests in Sunday school. And his his halakha is more lenient than Judaism today because he even heals. I mean, the guy's blind on Shabbat. He can heal him after Shabbat. He's going to be blind still, right? That's right. (laughs) Right now, he's not missing anything that he didn't see before. But notice the parallel that he pulls. And this is, to me, this is, and the Talmud uses it as well, but to me, this is like top shelf. He he impresses upon the hearers the 
obvious mercy that everyone feels for their animals. There it is. Obvious mercy. The animals can go without eating and drinking for a day. They'll be okay. It happens. But you don't want your animals to suffer even a little bit, especially, especially on Shabbat. And in this case, and that's the carry from the Talmud, but on this case, he falls in a ditch. He'll probably be okay. Get him out of the ditch tomorrow, right, right. but you're going to get him out, and the Torah says we should. Why? Because it, because Shabbat is an opportunity for compassion and for Amen. mercy. There it is. So what he did was not just heal on Shabbat, but he had compassion on Shabbat. And and turned their halakha. That's right. And and now we've got quotes. Just what's halakha? The walk. Thank you. How um, you do stuff. How we how we walk out our faith. So now we really can't look back and say. This halakha was changed because Yeshua changed it. Or Yeshua was quoting maybe Rabbi Halal. And the two of them caused it to be changed, or it was changed prior to. But um, Yeshua here, he, he, on another passage, he says it is good to do good on Shabbat. So he, that's kind of that extrapolation from, from right. this point. Right. The ox point, though, I really like this analogy because he's. He's sort of playing off of the the the, um, the biblical narrative par- quasi parable of Jonah with the with the tree because God True. similar situation there um, Jonah's mad because the people of Nineveh are supposed to be wiped out but they God repented has mercy on them because they repented right so then God causes a tree like this large bush plant thing to grow up over Jonah to give him shade and then kills it overnight. When it dies, Jonah is all mad and upset about it, and God response God's response to him is almost identical to what Yeshua says here, but in a, like different different characters. He's he's basically comes to him and says, if you had mercy on this plant that you neither created and it came and went in one day, then how much more will I have mercy on the animals and the people and whatever right. else that are in the city? There it is. All right, so um, we, we pick up in verse 7 of uh, Luke chapter 14. And I, I, can, just, I can just imagine, uh, as, as we've seen sometimes at our uh, Pesach tables, as the guests come in and they're just looking to get the best seat to sit at the table. And, uh, and we've seen that. We, we, we do it ourselves to try and, and get a good seat to hear some speaker or to... Uh, be close to the uh, porridge. Yes. He took up his parable to the guests, presumably the guests that were also invited to the Shabbat table, when he saw that they had chosen to sit at the front. And we know that the Proverbs already speaks against this, right? As, as our proverbial uh, man knows. Proverbial. <laughs> he said to them in verse 8, If a man invites you to his wedding celebration, don't recline at the head or else someone else more honored than you may also be invited there. The host will come up to him, to you and him, and tell you, clear a place for him. Then you'll get up ashamed and sit at the place at the end. But if you're invited, sit in the place at the end, so that the host will come and say to you, my friend, move up higher than this. It will bring you honor before those reclining with you. Everyone who lifts himself up will be brought low, but everyone who lowers himself will be lifted up. So I want to uh, see if I get my notes together here. That's uh, Rabbi Akiva. That's not now. Stand by, please. 
It turns out that uh, Rick's hero, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, actually had a similar parable. The Gemara brings home uh, this point. Solomon, as well said, the same in his wisdom, for in Ecclesiastes he wrote, At all times let your garments be white, and your head never lack oil. The Gamar, the Gamar, the Gemara explicit, ex- explicates the verse with a parable. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai said, What is King Solomon teaching in this verse? It may be compared to a king who invited his servants to a banquet, but he didn't know, set an exact time for them to arrive. Now the wise servants among them promptly adorned themselves in clothes appropriate for a royal affair and sat waiting at the door of the palace. For they said to themselves, Does the king's palace lack for anything? Certainly not. The banquet may be ready at any moment. We must be properly... He's going to get comfortable. Attired. If we are suddenly summoned. The foolish servants among them, however, went about their work and neglected to dress for the banquet. They said to themselves, Is there any such thing as a banquet prepared without toil? It will surely take place much time. Take, it will surely take the palace much time to ready the feast. And meanwhile, let us go about our business. The Gemara continues its parable. Suddenly, and without warning, the king summoned his servants to the banquet. The wise servants among them entered before the king properly adorned, while the foolish servants entered before him with clothes all soiled from the work with which they had just engaged. Now the king was happy to greet the wise servants, for they made certain to appear at the palace appropriately dressed, but he was angry when he greeted the foolish servants. Addressing the wise ones, the king said, These servants who adorn themselves for the banquet, let them sit, eat, and drink at the affair, for they prepared themselves appropriately appropriately for this. But those who failed to adorn themselves for the banquet, they may merely stand and watch the others partake. Okay. So that was uh, more on uh, being prepared. So I I jumped ahead on that. I apologize. But we'll come to it in a second. Um, He also said to the man who had invited him, If you make a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors, or else they may invite you too, and you've been paid back. But if you make a banquet, invite the poor and the oppressed and the lame and the blind. Oh, your gladness when they have no way to repay you, for it will be repaid to you at the resurrection of the righteous. So what what is he... what is he making clear here? What What do my actions in this world have the opportunity to do? It's like building up churches in heaven. Exactly. Basically. Exactly right. So it's, um, it's I a can, high form of tzedakah. You bet. And if I'm if I'm working with and ministering to those who I know cannot repay me, then it's clear that I'm not doing it in order to get an invite. One of those reclining heard this word and said to him, Oh, the gladness of one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. So it's obvious that his meaning regarding eternal life and the world to come was understood. Sure. That's cool. And then he goes and uh, gives the parable that uh, Yochanan ben Zakai was just relating. A certain man made a large meal and invited many people. He said to servant at that time of the meal to those invited, saying, Come, for it's all ready. All of them began to extricate themselves at once. The first said to him, I have purchased a field. Should I not go out and see it? I ask you to excuse me. That's like, now come to the banquet. I just bought a Mustang. I, I need to go check it out, make sure it's got no scratches. <laughs> Another said, I purchased five yoke of cattle and I'm going to inspect them. I ask you to excuse me. I need to take that Mustang for a ride and see if it'll blow some oil. 
Another said, I've taken a wife, and on account of this fact, I'm unable to come. Well, You're about the only guy I can think of that's got that excuse. Valid excuse. The valid servant excuse. came and told Apparently those things not. to his master. The owner of the house became furious, and he said to his servants, Quick! Go out to the town squares and streets and bring here the poor, the oppressed, the blind, and the lame. The servant said, My master, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. Yeah. The master said to the servant, Go out to the roads and pastures and urge them to come so that my house may be filled. For I say to you, not one of those invited shall taste my meal. So we, we recognize that they understood this to, uh, to be a part of the world to come. And uh, a nice statement along those lines. In the preceding discussion, the Gemara construed the scriptural charge. Let your garments be white as an exhortation to maintain the purity of one's soul. The Gemara now concludes by citing an alternative interpretation of this passage. When scripture states at all times, let your garments be white, this refers to one's zitzi. And when it states, and your head never lack oil, this refers to one's tefillin. I just only read that for Pete, actually. Well, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a... Uh, so, oh, that was in the Talmud in uh, Shabbos 153a. So here's a, here's a question for all of you. I just read pretty much the same parable. But that was Yochanan ben Zakai, And that one is Yeshua Hanotri. Who's quoting whom? Those quoting from a third source. Could be. And Q. Could be an early. Yeah. Q. That's right. I think it's Q. Yeah. Q. Actually, it's probably Yochanan's father was probably Zacchaeus. I'm Z document. I knew it. Well, so to be honest with you, I actually think Yochanan ben Zakai, who studied under Rabbi Hillel, I believe that Zakai was at the dinner. Oh, well, it's very likely. Very likely. likely. Perfect, but, perfect opportunity. Hey, I've heard this one before. Let me just exactly. retell it. No, I'm not going to attribute it because it's not necessary. It's not necessary. We all know who said it. <laughs> but, yes, it's very, but it's very But it's very possible that Halal... I'll be right, Yeshua. It's, it's very possible <laughs> You're that... You're 30. <laughs> it's very possible that Halal gave this. Sure. And they're, they're both quoting from a common source. I doubt it's Q... Or anybody in Q branch, <laughs> you well, then you. There's a, the, the commonality of the parables is very striking, but there's also like some differences, and the differences are what's intriguing about the one in the, in the Gemara is it's almost like a splice of two or three different parables that Yeshua uses, because it reminds me a lot of the virgins with the oil. Correct. Because um, their penalty was being, not prepared. being prepared. That was the issue. The parable you just read is a dinner feast, but it's not so much about being prepared as much as like as simply accepting the invitation. The, and then there's also the parable that the, the I think it maybe in Matthew there's the parallel to that one. Getting to it in just a second, so if you'll just pause on that for a moment, I'll dot, catch dot, up dot. with you. You get the point. There um, it is. Anyway, so Yeshua's got um, a variety of dinner parables, um, and then the Gemara seems to have this one. That's, anyway, it seems like a very common. Well, that, that, it works. That's understandable. A cultural thing is the it parables works. were a common cultural exactly. thing. Exactly. So like and, and everybody's going to have some variation of it. there was a dinner. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody came. The amazing thing is that there is a, a striking <laughs> parallel across all of them. Right. Right? Um, but I am actually going to, to bring us in just a second to how Yeshua's 
or, or let me rephrase that, how Matthew's version of this apparently same parable is fleshed out um, to maybe zing a little bit on the guys in his generation. Oops. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Oh, I know that guy. I beg your pardon. Okay. Yes, sir. Go ahead. I had a question about... Um, By the way, I think you, uh, you all owe a round of applause to the man who just got a promotion. Supervisor now. Cool. From the guy who said he wouldn't need it. Put in the super. Good for you. Dress for the position. This is what I wore today. On the Gemara portion, I can't remember if, uh, as he started reading this, do they give a? Does he give a source? No. No. Okay. I wasn't sure because usually, you know, if it's in the Gemara, they get at least the next twelve pages will be trying to figure out who actually <laughs> who, who said, said that, that first. Yeah. I just thought, yeah. yeah. It is written. So, Rabbi uh, Yehuda Hanasi, who is that? Judah the Prince. Prince. Who's that? He's the uh, codifier of the Mishnah. Redacted the Mishnah. Who stole it from Rabbi Hanasi? What? His master. What's the Mishnah? The fragments of the oral oral Torah that come together. Okay, so a a written version if you will, mm-hmm. of as best we could get of the oral Torah. Because, because at Usha, there were such div- uh, divisiveness and hatred among the brethren that Rabbi Meir took it upon himself to record it. And then his disciple, Yehuda, compiled it into a written document. And took all the credit. Yehuda took all the credit. <laughs> no, he doesn't actually, because he, he, he actually gives credit to Meir all the way through. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi said, To what may this be compared? To a king who made a banquet and invited guests to attend. He told them, Go wash yourselves, prepare your clothes, anoint yourselves with oil, wash your garments, and make yourselves ready for the banquet. He did not fix the time when they were to appear. The wise among them remained near the entrance of the palace, reasoning, Does a king's palace lack anything needful for hosting a banquet? The foolish among them disregarded the king's instructions. They reasoned, we will notice when the banquet is near because its preparations will require labor and great company. The plasterer went to his plaster, the potter to his clay, the smith to his forge, the fuller to his laundry, the IT guy to his Mac. Suddenly the king announced, This is sound like a mission. Let them all enter the banquet. They hastened the guests. Those prepared entered in their splendid attire, but the others came in their dirty garments. The king was pleased with the wise ones who had obeyed his instructions because their attire showed respect to his palace. He was angry with the fools who had ignored his instructions and disgraced his palace. The king said, Let those who have prepared themselves for the banquet come and eat at the king's table, but those who have not prepared themselves shall not partake of the meal. One might think that they were told to leave, but the king ordered, No, those who have prepared themselves shall recline and eat and drink, while these others shall be punished and lament. Standing and looking on. <laughs> it's like at least in the kingdom. Similarly, it's Isaiah declares that in the time to come, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. That is Ecclesiastes Rabbah nine seven, but I did not yeah, have it in the book. I knew it wasn't the mission. Um, right. The book of Luke, Yeshua has a very uh, dinner. Uh, I would almost <laughs> say enigmatic. 
um, counter beatitudes, um, where he says, "Blessed are those who you know mourn, but they shall be comforted." And then he flips it on its head and says, "Woe to those who rejoice now, for they will mourn. That's right. Woe to those who are full now, for they shall be hungry." Which is like the, basically the exact same language that's being yeah, used there. Exactly. Which also, I think, helps to reinforce the idea that Yeshua is not talking about social justice in that pair or that description. He's, he's focusing much more on the, the righteous um, may suffer in this world, but they will receive the reward later. The wicked receive the reward now. Well, what's what's what is the banquet to to which he's referring? Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Christian, and Jacob. Go, it might be called the marriage supper, supper of the, the Lamb. Lamb. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, we shall eat in in the world to come with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sure. Kosher. If you've got your Bibles, let's flip over now to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter twenty-two. Matthew twenty-two, where we have presumably the same parable, but he adds some other. Things. It's a wedding feast. Yeshua continued speaking to them in parables. He remarked, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king of flesh and blood. I'm, I'm deliberately reading from this weird translation so that you can you know, hear it you differently. Should, you should see my translation. Is it, is it quite as weird? It's, okay. it's, uh, it's in Yiddish. <laughs> cool, cool, yeah. <laughs> can be compared to a king of flesh and blood who made a wedding celebration for his son. He sent his ser- Well, that oh, kind of works. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the wedding celebration, but they did not want to come. He continued sending other servants, saying, Say to those who are invited, Look, I prepared my feast, my oxen and fattened animals have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding celebration. But they didn't pay attention to this and went their way. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Well, wait a minute. That's, that's a new twist. The king became enraged, sent his legions, and destroyed those murderers and burned their town in fire. And he said to his servants, See, the wedding celebration is prepared, but the ones invited were not fitting for it. Now please go to the road crossings and invite everyone you find to the wedding celebration. Those servants went out to the roads and took in everyone they found, both bad and good, and the wedding house was filled with dinner guests. Now we have a difference, another difference. When the king came to see the dinner guests, he saw a man among them who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Oops. He says to him, my friend, why did you come here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, tie his hands and feet, carry him out, and throw him into outer darkness, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth, for, there, for many are invited, but few are chosen. So there we have it. So Go to a wedding celebration unless you're dressed. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Nice. Yeah, I can't even show up here. I'm just going to now without looking like holding this. Worse than that. So, the one in Luke uh, appears pretty pretty uh, tame. Got a big dinner. Sent his slave. Nobody wants to come. Those invited didn't want to come. And, and what was it that was prohibiting them from coming? Life. Just the cares of life. And then the slave is commanded to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We've done that. We've still got more room. And we go to the highways that the house may be filled. None of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. That was the bottom line. 
And we go to the parallel in Matthew, we've got the same kind of deal, only now it's a wedding feast. He sent out other slaves, more than one. <clears throat> Pardon me, the slaves were mistreated and killed. The king's enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed the murderers and set their city on fire. Now, I, I think that he added that to specifically speak to the generation with which he was dealing. And his father did exactly that. This is the city that had killed the prophets over and over again. And he sent his armies, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the first time, and burned that city. The second thing that's added in the Matthew account has to do with the wedding clothes and not being dressed properly. And that is such an amazing parallel to the apocalypse where John makes it clear that we will be given these garments by God. We will be dressed in fine white linen. And that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you need to be dressed. The righteous deeds. Precisely. Exactly right. Um, so the sad part is, uh, of course, the part about the binding hand and foot, throwing him into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a little bit more than just standing by and watching everyone else eat. That's actually a severe punishment. Yeah, we see that when we made reference to Gehenna. It seems to me that it's very possible that we actually have two uh, two tellings of this same parable. Yeah. Um, because this would be an extremely rude parable to tell at, a dinner at someone's home. Absolutely. You've, you're an invited guest of a ruler of the Pharisees, and you diss them like this. Yeah. When you read this in its full context, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard about his parables. It sounds like he's told this maybe privately, to a group of a, a close group of Pharisees, right? Maybe those who are he has a lot of of, of agreement with in relationship. Sure. Relationship where yeah. we 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 talk halakha. Is it a, is it approved to heal and all that kind yeah. of stuff? Whereas this is because later on we see the same group signing up with the Herodians who are like, if you can get as close to pagan as you can, okay. so that's those guys. So for those listening behind that blue light, let's make sure. That we share with them these various groups that we're we're talking about because right. in the visible expression of the church, if you're a Pharisee, yeah. you're a religious leader, you're a scribe, you're anything, you're on the bad side. Right. But he's actually sitting down and eating with the Pharisees, which which is a, which and the Pharisees that he's and that's my point is the Pharisees that he's eating with. You don't sit down and eat with people that you don't have agreement with. Exactly. And so he's eating with he's table eating fellowship. With people, it's a table of fellowship. Whereas this, there are some Pharisees, but the Pharisees in this account, immediately after this, if you re- keep reading, the Pharisees in this account, they go and get some Herodians, and they come back and try and trick, trick yeah. him. And the Herodians are like completely opposite of Pharisees. Absolutely. They are like, they're, they're secular. They're not really secular, they're but they're priests. almost secular. I yeah. mean, they're really, they're like, they're like the, the Reformed Jews of today. That's Herodians. But the Pharisees are Huh? Well, they go with the Herodians. Not all of them, but there were certainly some. So in the Pharisees, you've got this a small group that were, were playing the, the wrong side of the fence, and you've definitely got some that were saved. But there's a third. He was buried by two Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And you've got this other group that I think was yeah. embracing what yeah. he was saying sure. and, and, and wanting to 
And Matthew Discuss talks it. about them several you times bet. in positive ways. But there's so, another, they're also tied up, it says, with chief priests. So, well, chief so you priests, have these Pharisees are, are, are hanging out with some Sadducees. That's pretty weird. And they're also hanging out with some Herodians. So Sadducees, chief priests, and you know, Herodians. religious leaders, I would call the Sadducees. Yes. So just if you just grab the chief priests and the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple. Yeah. That, those are the folks that I think the folks in the visible expression of the church should, should, yeah. should call the bad side or the but, dark side. But it seems to me that there were, there were some Pharisees there were. present Absolutely. That, that, did, that had an issue with Yeshua. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, they, and like you said, those are the ones that went to the Herodians. Right. So, again, in any body, large body of, of men, no matter how religious they may be, you're going to have the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, you, I mean, right here, yeah. I mean, you've got... But we're told that, the, that, we're told that all of the Pharisees at his trial left. Right. All of them. None of them stuck around for the trial. So even the bad Pharisees knew this was not right. Right. Exactly right. Based upon some of the limited research that I've read about the Pharisees, is that uh, a white from, Just check. It's the uh, yeah. Is that your wife's fault? Sorry. Overstock selling androids. Right. You've been <laughs> now. You've been you've been promoted, so you probably afford a real one. Now. <laughs> Whoa! It worked. Oh. Put it away. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> It's upside down. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. So the uh, the, fa- the Pharisees, based upon some of the things that Josephus says, and also some of the things you read in the Talmud um, and some independent research, the it's hard to say the Pharisees did exactly. Exactly. It's kind of seven like kinds saying, of Pharisees. Yeah. So when because I've read some critical scholars who say you know the Pharisees are going and hanging out with the Herodians that never would have happened this clearly is just an erroneous account and we can't trust it um, however it, the Pharisee was the dominating party at that time and you didn't really have to be well, very religious at the time of Yeshua the particular sect of Prashim that was in was dominant was Beit Shammai that's right Right, who was a Pharisee? They were, they were right. No, they were, yeah. but Beit Shemai was not the same as Beit Halal. Indeed, and we even have that in the liturgy of those two camps. It's fundamental difference. Absolutely, they, they're killing. They, they, they they're killing one another. Killing each other. No, no, we're not allowed to talk about that. So, but nevertheless, though, which actually, is why I don't think there's any evidence that anyone from Beit Halal killed anyone from Beit Shemai. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, I, you know. So, not a lot of merit. Picking, picking hairs now. Yeah, so the, to say, you know, the Pharisees wouldn't have done this or they would have done this, you know, everyone, if you weren't anything, you were just lumped in with the Pharisees. Sure. Because they were the people's, true. the majority of the people were Absolutely the Pharisees. Yeah. So yeah. You, it ranges from very stringent to true. nothing. Yeah. So. Now, I would, I, would, I would say, I would put two bookends when I'm talking to someone in the, in the general expression of the church today. On the conservative side and on the liberal side. On the liberal side, I would say that they had a halakha, always had a halakha that separated them from just regular people. Right. On the conservative side, I would say that you had a mix at that top end there that caused them to be very particular about what they did, who they met with, etc. 
And in saying that, I would, I would always point out there is absolutely no scriptural evidence that Yeshua ever ate a meal with a Herodian or a Sadducee. Correct. No, then, but he regularly ate with Pharisees, not just once, but on a regular basis. They were inviting him to eat. So while there is a broad spectrum of Pharisaic halakha beliefs. and beliefs, sure, Yeshua seemed to align himself or be able to argue well with a group that separated itself from those who had no religious belief yeah. or no halakha. Yeah, that's so, but, but you're exactly right. And Joshua. the Pharisees um, have, in addition to the range of um, religious belief within the group, they also had a range of approach to Yeshua that went very pretty wide. You mentioned a couple of them that followed him. But then there's actually a whole group of them that follow him around. All and they're not necessarily, from what it looks like at the beginning of the story, they're not following around because they don't like it. They're they call him Lord, and they call him Master. And they're trying to figure out who he is, and trying to see exactly what kind of a person he wants to be, or he, you know, he's going to be, whatever. Thinking this they, could be cool. They're, they're watching to see what happens. They're asking questions, not necessarily aggressively. I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a bit anachronistic of us to assume that most of the time they asked him questions, they were trying to trick him. There's only certain groups that do that later, but in the beginning, I think a lot of the questions are very honest ones. Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Or because they just want to talk to him. And they want to be curious. And then you've also got um, there's a group of the Pharisees that actually tried to tell him, that, te- that, that kind of warn Yeshua, hey, by the way, there's these uh, Herod's come to get you. Herod's guys are coming to get you. So there's like a there's a group that are um, almost. Well, they're definitely supportive of Yeshua, as well as a group that are neutral. That's exactly right. It's almost kind of like the Republican Party. You know, you got the Tea Party. You've got the you know the Rhino kind of liberal Republicans. You've got the Conserve Flat Republicans. They're all over the place. That's good. Keep it going. Keep it moving. Isaac doesn't. This is a summary of what we just said, as well as the references that we use. Thank you very much. A couple more. We should be. That's right. Peter doesn't get one. And Judah can share with Je- with uh, Rick. You don't need to look at that right now. You can just stick it away. Um, but I just want to make sure everybody had one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so the, what led me to talk about this banquet thing? And uh, really the answer is it's not possible to look at one of those hard sayings of Messiah that we went through last week without taking it in context. And it's at the back end of Luke 14. It's at the back end of Matthew 22, etc. So uh, I had to read through that before I could get to what we're talking about. Yes, sir. There's one other fascinating aspect. A lot of people tend to say that bringing the Talmud into the Gospels as for any kind of discussion, discussion is anachronistic and we can't do that and we have no way of knowing. However, in the, the uh, Daf a couple of days ago, there's a really fascinating, the Daf is the daily reading of the Talmud, um, there's a fascinating discussion about the Pharisees and their hand-washing techniques. Yeah. 
and how if certain people, um, if they didn't watch their their dish or their cup of wine and then they walk away, it's unclean because you can't verify. Or you know, amha arts people of the land, like the levels of hand washing. If they don't pour, do what you do, you can't eat with them. So it's really amazing that. Um, and then there's discussions of, you know, when you're eating ordinary food like bread, um, you need to wash your hands before you eat it. But anything else, you don't need to wash your hands. Um, and it talks. It says in direct quote in the Talmud, "Those who wash their hands before everything are of haughty spirit." And it's really cool because that it's you know some of Yeshua's most misunderstood statements are around hand-washing, right. Matthew 15 and Mark 7, 9. That's exactly right. So it's pretty amazing that the Talmud, again, takes his view, uh, albeit modified and a little bit more developed. Um, but to your point, uh, and that's what I tried to raise earlier with uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai, we have no way of knowing. Are they quoting him, or is he quoting the source that the Talmud later quotes? We don't need to know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is, that's the right answer. That's the way we should think. And we should look at that. So, it's a good deal. All right, as we continue to, uh, to move through the scripture here, um, Luke 14 again. If you go back to our uh, original pass- passage there. Uh, okay, Google. Oh, Father. <laughs> There's a reason that didn't work. <laughs> hey Siri. <laughs> Katana, Katana, I want to, I want to make both of these guys disappear. What do I do? Okay. <laughs> take out that twenty. Luke, <laughs> take out that ring first. Luke fourteen twenty-five. A large crowd of people was walking with him, and he turned to the, and said to them. If someone comes to me, and, and I think the point here I wrote down was followers are not necessarily disciples. Disciples are guys that forsake the day-to-day stuff and come on a Tuesday night. If someone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and even his own life, he is not able to be my disciple. Does not pick, whoever does not pick up his cross and come after me is not able to be my disciple. Oh, so, so Jesus just told us that we, we don't have to honor our, our mother and father. Exactly. Right? So we, we, can violate, we can violate the fifth commandment because well, it really doesn't matter, right? That. <laughs> so, that was a tough one. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. So, uh, so, so Yeshua so actually desires... The tough sayings of Yeshua. So Yeshua actually desires disciples that hate their parents, are pretty miserable with life, and are oh come on, right? So what's 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 the deal? And as we said last week, this 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 concept in this statement is nearly incomprehensible outside of a Hebraic or even a rabbinic context. And if we look at it in those, then we see a different perhaps take on it. First, um, the whole love-hate thing in Hebrew uh, tends to be for comparison and for priority. And I would bring you back to Genesis 29, 30, and 31. You don't need to flip to it. Um, you know it already. Is that an iPhone 6? Yes. Mine comes on 
Thursday. Woohoo! Thing of beauty. It's the size of this table, actually. Yeah. Taylor and I have had it's, big screens for way longer. Than mine is. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you guys are catching up. So mine is, mine is the iPhone six double plus. It's the size of the glass here. Right. So like you the know, red roof in plus plus. It's yeah. it's great. The red roof in. <laughs> Jacob <laughs> says, <laughs> Jacob loved Rachel, and he hated <laughs> Leah. Did he really hate his wife, Leah? No. no. So he loved her less. He loved Rachel more. So we've well, got. We've got a comparison well, thing going. Yeah, it's more like I think a relative thing. Exactly. It's a relative thing, which is exactly what we see Yeshua saying about our love for him. Where else do we see this? How about love the Lord your heart? Well, if, if I, well, no, if I'm loving him with all my heart, then how much of my heart is left for my wife? There it is. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, a difference. The Greek is uh, misseo. Is that right, misseo? I think so. To esteem less. Exactly. And if we look in Matthew 10, 37, it, we have um, exactly the same trans, uh, passage translated, um, if he loves them less than he loves me. So it's, it's a more and less than, yeah, you know. Um, discipleship was likened to family. I mean, we have the house of Hillel, the house of Shammai, and they would often call their um, master's father common model for uh, teacher disciples. Teacher would call them sons. Exactly. But it's just biblical. And Paul did the same thing. Well, that's like Akiva and Rachel. No wonder the church is in the shape it's in right now. It's Akiva and Rachel. Uh, when, 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 uh, when his disciples wouldn't let Rachel come to him. Hang on a second. I'm going to read that actually from the Talmud. Gee, weird. Disregard. Minus one for anticipation. Both of the Spurlocks. (laughs) (laughs) Just got to put a muzzle on Well, no, we're thinking alike. That's good. There's a surprise, right? Um, This is from uh, Mishnah Bava Metzia, 211. Joseph, what's the mission? I thought we went through that before. The Mishnah is the written expression of the best we have of the oral Torah. I deliberately, I really, I don't want to say. I don't want to say that it's the written down of the oral Torah because I think that would be an incorrect view. That's good that we went over it again because of what Mishnah means. Repetition. Yeah. I miss you. Yeah. I miss you too. So here's what the Mishnah says. If a disciple has to choose and have you ever wondered what's right and wrong? Yeah. Nope. I used to. <laughs> that read the Torah. Then you found the lake. Isn't, isn't that really what every day is about? Yeah. We want to do right. This guy writes that in his uh his post script. Be good, do good. Be good, do good. Oh, good. Oh. So here's what the mission says. So tell me what you think about this. If a disciple has to choose between his father's priorities and his master's priorities, who's his master? It's his teacher. It's his Torah teacher, right? So he's got to choose between his father's priorities and his master's priorities. Who takes precedence? Is he married? Those of his master take precedence. For his father brought him into this world. But his master, who taught him wisdom, will bring him into the life of the world to come. But if his father is also a sage, that of his father takes precedence. Now, 
If his father and master were both carrying heavy burdens, which one does he get? He, he removes that of his master right and carries it for him and afterward removes that of his father. Okay. If his father and his master were taken captive, which unfortunately Christians were doing it all the time, um, <laughs> um, he ransoms his master. master and afterward he ransoms his father because, of course, he's Jewish. He's got a lot of money. Well, there you have it. Mm-hmm. So, That's where he got his he's ransom. a Jewish banker. He's a Jewish banker. So there you have it. So... In, in that context, and if that's the relationship you're supposed to have with your teacher, walking in the dust of his footsteps, is it any anything out of context for the master to use this type of language if he doesn't hate his father and mother, hate his own life, take up his cross, follow me? As we, as we see it in a rabbinic context, as we see it in a Talmudic context, we, we understand it. it it's, it's speaking to a couple, of, a couple of different concepts. One is it's speaking to loyalty, right? Which is why, you know, we have other quotes from Yeshua, you know, if you love me, keep my mitzvot. Right. Love, in the Hebraic context, in that sense, doesn't mean, like, romantic. Right, right, right. It means faithfulness or in John he says these guys aren't with us how do we know because they left us right <laughs> right so it's speaking to it's speaking to loyalty and faithfulness yeah. right You're, you need to be faithful to the to your master to your Torah teacher but it's also I think um, drawing out the point that there is a price to pay there's a cost to um to you know, to immerse yourself in Torah and take on the yoke of the Torah, there is a price that has to be paid. And and he actually goes into that into the very next exactly. passage about building the tower and counting the cost before you start. You bet. Outstanding. May we all be uh, sages or children not to worry about making that decision? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Exactly right. I was thinking that myself today and wondering, okay, so who would Pete help? That's tough. So I'm going to read a story of Rabbi Akiva, and I am reading from uh, the Babylonian Talmud in uh, 62b. Ketubot. Or Kesubos, depending on where you're from. Kesubos. Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd for Ben Kalba Savua. Mm. Ben Kalba Savua's daughter saw that he was modest and a fine character. She asked him, If I become betrothed to you, will you go to the academy to study Torah? He said to her, Yes. He betrothed her in secret, and she sent him away to the academy. When her father heard about it, Whoa. He threw her out of his house and made a vow prohibiting her to benefit from his possessions. Mm. Disowned him. Rabbi Akiva went and sat for 12 years in the academy. Not long enough. When he returned, he brought 12,000 students with him. As he approached his home, he heard a certain old man saying to his wife, Until when will you lead a life of living widowhood? 
I'm saying it to his wife. She answered him, if he would listen to me, he would sit in the academy another 12 years. Hearing this, Rabbi Akiva said to himself, I'm acting with my wife's permission. He went back and sat another 12 years in the academy. When he returned, he brought 24,000 students with him. Unbelievable. His wife heard of his return, and she went out to meet him. Her neighbor said to her, Borrow some suitable articles of clothing and dress yourself. She said to them, A righteous one knows his animal's soul. When she reached him, she fell on her face. As she was kissing his foot, his attendants pushed her away, which is what Rick was alluding to just a minute ago. Rabbi Akiva said to them, Leave her alone. The portion of Torah that is mine and the portion that is yours belong to her. Her father heard that a great man had come to town. He said, I will go to him. Perhaps he will annul my vow. Kind of feeling for the girls. 24 years ago, that was a mistake. He came to Rabbi Akiva and asked him to annul the vow. Rabbi Akiva said to him, Did you make the vow with the intent that it would apply even if your son-in-law becomes a great man? He replied, Even if he would know, even if he would know just one chapter of Mishnah or even just one halakha, I would not have made the vow. Rabbi Akiva said to him, I am he. Ben Kalba Savua fell on his face and kissed him on his foot, and he gave Rabbi Akiva half of his possessions. Oddly enough, the daughter of Rabbi Akiva did the same with Ben Azai. Oops. And this is the basis <laughs> of that which people say, a you follows a you, as does the mother, so does it's the daughter. Measure, measure. <laughs> is that, what a great story. Isn't it great? So the idea, yeah. Jesus. Rachel. So the, the idea of Rachel putting the Torah study and, and her husband's study of the Torah ahead of her own pleasure is astonishing. It really is. And the fact that one of the greatest Torah scholars of, of that day was not only a Gentile convert, but just a lowly People shepherd. People don't exist like that anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, they me. do, but they're hidden. Me, me, him. That's right. This story, Here we are. Yes, it's I, think, uh, I think I've shared with the group four that uh, for the last probably year and a half, maybe two years now, I've been reading biographies yeah. of modern sages, uh, you know, like within the last you know, 50 to 100 years. And... Um, some of which one you of shared things, with us. Right. One of the things that, has, that struck me in every case, because um, I've read a, I've read the biography on Baba Sali, Blessed Memory, uh, Rabbi uh, Eliashiv, um, of Blessed Memory, uh, Rabbi um, Avadji Yosef, of Blessed Memory, and um, Ben Shai. Yeah, right. And in every case, these men, their devotion to their Torah study uh, was, you know, just amazing. But it was only made possible by the fact that they had a wife that was devoted to their husband's Torah study. Amen. Meaning, uh, like I recall, the, the, it, tell about the one with the the wife bringing him dinner all the time, and yeah, she didn't realize. Yeah, that's so the Babasali. Uh, you know, he constantly had a stream of people, you know, lined up, lined outside his home, you know, wanting 
counseling, wanting to receive a blessing from the from the Rob, you know, wanting this one. And and he and and so he had set hours during the day where he would take visitors, and then he, the rest of the time he was you know basically in solitude in his study, either you know studying, praying, whatever. His wife would come in and bring food in for him, you know, leave it and, and go away, come back a couple hours and get the empty dishes, right? And she did this every day, three meals a day for years, until she suddenly realized that she finally clued in that he was not eating the food. He would give the food to people who were coming. Standing in line. To, to counsel with him. And he, he, you know, he'd give them the food and he would not eat six days a week. He would only eat on Shabbat. He was fasting every, uh, all other six days. And he did that for like four years before his wife actually knew he wasn't <laughs> eating the food that he was, she was preparing, right? Rabbi... Uh, Talk about some abs, boys. Yeah. Rabbi Eliashiv would, same, same, uh, he was, um, same, similar type thing. Uh, he would have this constant stream of people wanting his attention. And his wife would guard his time. She would refuse to let, I mean, even other great rabbis in the community, she would be like, uh-uh. You, you're not going to talk to him now. Why? Because this is his, he's studying, mm-hmm. right? And we do not interrupt his study time because she understood that his Torah study was his purpose in life that, that Hashem had given him, right? And so the wife protected and guarded him and allowed him to achieve the greatness that he achieved. How cool and, is it? and I could go on and on about any of the other ones as well, but yeah. it's, it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So what the master said, which was the, the whole point of this hard saying, is really not that hard a saying at all. In the context of great men of faith and those that are trying to step up and be not just the regular people of this world, the Am Ha'aretz, but the Tzadikim, the righteous men of a generation, it makes perfect sense. So, this was uh, one hour on a little lead up, and then a, a layout of that. So, um, this is what we're going to do until um, we knock these out. Um, somebody said we should be able to do two or three of these in a night. Um, we probably could do two or three in a night, but I just don't know if we could give it enough fleshing it out. Like you know, if we couldn't get some context, because I think your context here is key um, for for figuring out what's going on. So, awesome. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, our next meeting is um, here on Erev Shabbat. So I want to encourage you to, uh, I think I heard on Shabbat, we should eat big. Yeah, Somebody mitzvah. said we should eat big. It's a mitzvah to eat big. Before the fast. <laughs> not on Shabbat. Yeah, not before Shabbos. Not bad. this Shabbat. Prior to Shabbat. His Shabbos is Yom Kippur. Prior to Shabbos. He said before Shabbos. He said before Shabbos. He said before Shabbos. He said before Shabbos. I was just, I was only clarifying. So, we're going to eat big before you come here on Erev Shabbat. If you're coming here for an Erev Shabbat meal with me, you will be disappointed. But it will be a great fast opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, 
So that's that's the deal. And they'll kick off. 24 hours faster to do a 33-hour yeah. fast. No! So that'll, that'll kick in our 25-hour fast. And um, we've got uh, three prayer services lined up for Shabbat. So I'm kind of excited about So we just practice. So yeah, ready. exactly right. So, so this, should be, <coughs> this should be good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I can tell you uh, this is the first year that my wife and I um, read through... Everything about Gedalia in the Talmud, in the Bible, etc., and, and must have read 20, 25 chapters in Jeremiah, because I were working on context. <laughs> so I'm trying. <laughs> Forty years before the siege of Jerusalem, you know. Uh, so we we read all the way leading up to it, wow. and then the siege. Two years into the after that, the king's reign. Then they break out, run away. Bad news. So, if you read it in Second Kings, you didn't get the detail. If you read it in Jeremiah, it was unbelievable. So, um, but this year, my wife asked me. Uh, well, actually, she didn't ask me. She said, "This is the first year where I really understand why we're fasting for this guy, because it's not just about him. It's about the fact that his decision to not heed the counsel." to not listen to what was truly the Shon Hara, evil speech, caused the remnant to be wiped out, and for the temple to be destroyed, and for Jerusalem to be torn down. And it really is... And a complete removal from the land. Yeah. And if you, if you think of it in that context, then the, the fast of the seventh month fits perfectly with the fast of the fourth, the fifth, and the tenth. The fast of the tenth is really the first one, as the siege begins. Two years later, on the seventeenth of Tammuz, they they break through the walls, and on the ninth of Av they destroy the temple and Jerusalem, and then later on, in the seventh month, Gedaliah, who's been set up as the governor, is killed, and everything else is wiped out. So it's a it's a complete destruction, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing that all these fasts were set up by the sages, that we might understand how important this city and this temple was and is to God. And quite frankly, I think it's an astonishing thing that the, the prophet actually, Zechariah, actually lists these as being regular days of fasting and mourning that will be turned into days of joy and celebration when Messiah comes. That's amazing. Because that means that the concept that the elders were given the opportunity to make halakha and decisions along these lines is a true statement. Because it's not a biblical thing that we should fast on these days. It's a ruling of the elders. And God honored their ruling and chooses to take that it's in and made it biblical. Bible. Exactly. <laughs> so that's to me that's an astonishing thing. Good. Go ahead. It also tells us that the death of a righteous person is a series of the Absolutely. destruction of the temple. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Because yeah. we do the same thing for both. Yeah. It's kind of important. That's yep. true. That's good. All right. Well, if you'd like to have a glass of wine with me, I'd love to have a glass of wine with you. And uh, I. I want you to know as we begin this year and, and we approach Yom HaKippurim that uh, I, I regularly try to pray for each one of you guys. 
strictly from a selfish perspective because you have massaged my walk and you have motivated me to step up and you got me reading a Talmud. Holy cow, what's wrong with me? That, you know, it's astonishing. And I am so grateful for you. So let me, uh, let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for these righteous men. I thank you for their diligence and their dedication that even on a Tuesday night in the middle of the work week, they would forsake everything and come over here and study with me. Father, I pray that you would bless them in an unbelievable way that you would open their eyes to insights in the Torah and in the Talmud that would affect many generations. Father, I pray that you would find every man in this room faithful to seek out ways that they can keep those positive commandments and that they would quickly turn and flee from opportunities to perform any of those negative commandments. Father, I thank you for their diligence in that regard. And pray for each man and myself that you would keep us and guard us unto the day of salvation. We pray that our fast coming up at the end of this week would be an easy fast. And that you would find us faithful in rejoicing because of the atonement, the permanent and eternal atonement that you provided through the blood of the righteous one, Yeshua Hanutri. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, man.